Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. Good to see all of you. God bless you. Trust that you've already been encouraged in the Lord this morning. Um, we are not diverting from the Gospel of Luke um, in uh, our study during the Christmas season for one really simple reason that especially in the text we're studying today Luke in his gospel is calling us to humility in our praying and as he calls us to humility in our praying you and I just need to realize that the clearest picture of humility is the Christmas story where the God of the universe took on our humanity and I don't think till we get to heaven and I think when we do get to heaven it will be staggering to us when we realize what a step down that was, a choice he made so that he might lift us up. He who was rich, Paul writes in Corinthians, became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in him. And man, that'll be a, a, a glorious day when we see all that Jesus has done for us. I want to begin by a reading a quote um, from Larry Osborne's book, Accidental Pharisees. And uh, you'll understand as we make our way through the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee why this is uh, apropos this morning. But just listen. I've got a little bit to read, and then you'll see the last half of it up above. Um, Larry Osborne writes, God hates pride. It's at the top of his I hate it when you do that list. But for some reason, lots of us downplay our tendency to pat ourselves on the back, and to look down on others, especially if we find ourselves at the, front of following, uh, the, at the front of the following Jesus line. But the truth is, pride and looking down on others wrecks everything. It's a cancer that spreads till it kills. If we want to please the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, we need to see it in the mirror and root it out immediately at all costs. If not, we'll become a Pharisee, accidentally perhaps, but a Pharisee nonetheless. So it's interesting in Luke chapter 18, as Jesus is teaching what the community of discipleship looks like, he moves towards the subject of prayer. And, and last week he told us, to pray and not lose heart. And he had this beautiful picture, this uh, story of a woman, a widow, uh, uh, a nobody who was treated unjustly and was tenacious in her appeal to an unjust judge. And uh, we saw that in her pleading, she was modeling for us that we ought to be defiant against the darkness. My word, which has been repeatedly corrected since last Sunday, indefatigable. Thank you. All the editors came after me uh, with some tenacity last week. Uh, I'm not sure they were tenaciously praying, but they were tenaciously editing. <laughs> and that's the last time I'm using that word in this series, just so you know. But, you know, that's what Jesus is really doing. He's, he's pointing to... That illustration and saying, in a world that's difficult, in a world that's dark, when we have the tendency to lose heart, and when we lose heart, we stop praying. We stop believing that God's engaging with us and, 
and, and, and it ought to be in the middle of the darkest hour we realize that the clearest line has been opened up to us to heaven in Jesus Christ. And we ought to pray. But here's, here's the danger, and this is why Jesus continues to teach on prayer. On one hand, one of our challenges in praying is that we have the propensity to lose heart. But as strange as it seems, the other propensity we have is to lose humility. That prayer can actually become a badge in our spiritual lives whereby we start to feel like if we are serious about our prayer lives, if we are good about our prayer lives, we're diligent about our prayer lives, if our devotions are going well, well, good for us. And it becomes a mark of self-righteousness. Martin Luther had this famous saying. He said, human nature is like a drunken peasant riding a horse. You lift him into the saddle on one side and over he topples on the other. And what he was meaning there is, on one hand, we could be struggling and not praying, we'll be losing heart. And so somebody props us up and says, don't lose heart. Be tenacious against the dark. And then we fall off on the other side, which is not despair but self-righteousness. We become prayers in our own, or we become Pharisees in our own prayer lives. A good prayer life is a bad prayer life if we think our praying says something about our goodness rather than our neediness. We ought to pray boldly, but we should never pray brashly. And so you and I need to see that as Jesus is calling his disciples to pray, he's warning them about the insidious anti-gospel nature of some kinds of religious life and praying. That if you pray in such a way that you feel good about yourself, you will inevitably find yourself looking down your nose at the sinners around you that are in desperate need of the grace of God. And prayer ought to put you in the position where before Christ you have hope and you're drawn near to other people. Isn't the story of Christmas that God came down? And we have to be careful in reaching up that we don't raise ourselves up above everybody else looking down our nose at one another. It is toxic. It is dangerous. Not simply for us, which this text addresses, but it's dangerous for the mission of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, my dear friends, I'm the worst. So if you heard John give his intro, if you were here for his intro at the beginning, and you hear, wow, Man, John was uh, in re really rough shape early in his life, and he had addictions to battle, and he was in a place of despair. I just want to tell you something. I never knowingly and willingly became a, uh, took drugs in my entire life. I don't think I've ever been drunk. Now, my roommate at one point in time was on drugs, and he drugged my lunch, so I have been high. <laughs> and I did score two goals that night playing hockey. But I did not return. <laughs> but here's, here's what I want to announce to you. I need to announce to you that I was absolutely in the same despairing position at that point in my life because there was no hope in Kevin Dibley because he didn't do everything else everybody else was doing. I needed a Savior. Thank God Jesus came. Uh, when I was in seminary, my mentor, uh, Don Theobald, one time I remember we were meeting in his office and we were talking about preaching and uh, praying and he said this line, he said a lot of lines that stuck with me. This is one of the, the best lines he ever said to me um, that has stuck with my, my whole life. He said, 
Christ had to die for every sermon I've ever preached and every prayer I've ever prayed. That stuck with me. I've never preached a sermon that didn't have pride in it. I've never prayed a prayer that wasn't more my will than thy will. Right? I have struggled with all of these things. We struggle with these things. And yet, so when we come to this text of Scripture and Jesus is teaching us about the Pharisee and the tax collector, he's not trying to get you to say, which one of these two am I? What he's actually seeking that you would see is that both of these men live in you. Jesus, by pointing and going after spiritual pride and pointing to the two men, is not asking us whether we are one or the other, but to recognize that both live inside us. So here's what I want to do this morning. I don't know how many of you are Jeff Foxworthy fans. He's kind of getting out of time. But if you remember Jeff Foxworthy, his famous routine is, you might be a redneck if, right? So you'd say, you know, if the stock market crashes and you have no realization it's happening, you might be a redneck. Or he says, you know, if the value of your car significantly increases when you fill it with gas, uh, you may be a redneck. All of those apply to me, by the way. <laughs> I am a redneck. <laughs> uh, but here's what I want to do this morning. I don't want to say if you uh, do these things, you might be a redneck. What I want you to see in this text is if these things are true, to you, uh, true of you, you might be a Pharisee. And here's what I want you to invite you to do, because I want to tell you this. You are. There's a part of you that is. And as we walk through the text, may this text help you run to Jesus and see Jesus for who he really is. So I'm going to ask you questions about prayer in this passage of Scripture and ask you to diagnose that self-righteousness that plagues us all so that we might, as the tax collector and the Pharisee, run to Jesus. Okay? So can I ask you to do that this morning? Because you'd really miss the sermon if you kind of start thinking about the people around you that need to hear this. <laughs> if you do that, you're a Pharisee. <laughs> but uh, let's begin with the text of Scripture. Here's the first thing I want to ask. What attitude do you have towards people before you pray? That's where I want to start out with this text of Scripture. Look at verse 9 of uh, Luke chapter 18. Jesus, or Luke writes, and Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with what? Contempt. Those things are meant to go together. Trusting in yourself, treating others with contempt. If you trust in yourself, you will treat others with contempt. That's just an inevitability. Now, one of the things I want you to see here in this passage of Scripture is that that phrase, trusted in themselves, was already used by Luke in this gospel when Jesus was teaching. So let me show you that phrase in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 to 10, where Jesus has been accused of doing the work of Beelzebul, being on the side of Satan. And as Jesus responds, he tells This parable, he says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when a stronger one than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That's the phrase, a man who trusts in his armor. Now listen to what David Garland says Jesus is doing here. 
He says, the verb convinced, to trust, to have confidence, appears in Luke eleven twenty two in the story of the strong man who guarded his own palace in peace until the stronger took away the armor in which he trusted and divided the spoil. In this parable, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus will assail and take away what the hearers have put their trust in, namely their self-assurance that they are right with God. So Jesus is the stronger one now to come and tear down your self-righteousness. That in which you trust yourself. That's what Jesus is doing in this parable. Somebody's stronger. Aren't you glad Jesus is stronger? And that he loves us enough to deal with our self-righteousness? And so the question that we say is, he's addressing those who have put their confidence in their own righteousness and then look with contempt on others. Here's the question I want to ask you this morning initially. What attitude are you expressing towards others? The word contempt in the Greek, exutheneo, means to despise or to treat with contempt. It's the exact word that is used in Luke 23, 11, when it says, and Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And I think we should stop and realize this, that whenever you're looking with contempt on another person, you're doing exactly what Herod and the soldiers were doing to Jesus. And as a Christian, you realize that when you do it to others, you do it, you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you do it unto me. Well, what's being taught here is this is the kind of contempt that people would even show against Jesus. And when we do it, when we're self-righteous and show contempt to others, it's really against Christ. So here's the principle. You will never treat people with contempt. You'll never treat people with contempt unless spiritual pride is in you. We've been studying in our uh, small group on Friday nights, Andrew Murray's book on humility. This is one of my favorite quotes from the book. Humility toward men will be the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. I just want you to hear that this morning. So here's the, pr- the practical starting point for studying this passage of Scripture. Those who trusted in themselves, in their own righteousness, and had contempt on others. Here's a simple question for you to think about and for me to think about. Are you looking with contempt on any person right now? That person could be in your family. That could person could be a spouse, a child, a parent. That person could be a coworker, an employee, an employer. Understand? The question that you need to ask, because here's what I want to tell you. Your prayer will be filled with spiritual pride as a believer if you are looking with contempt on anyone. That's what he's addressing. Now, in, in secular, you say, you know, where, where does contempt show itself? In secular culture, there's all kinds of research done on the subject of content, uh, co- contempt. Dr. Ira Roseman at Rutgers University has an interesting chapter in a book called Rejecting the Unworthy. I just love that title. Contempt is rejecting the unworthy. In his research, he writes, contempt is present in the schoolyard, where the literature on physical aggression is being supplemented by a growing number of studies on social aggression manifested in teasing, taunting, reputation, sullying, and exclusion from relationships. In other words, to show contempt is to be the schoolyard bully. 
to be a spiritual schoolyard bully. He writes, it is present in some marriages where Gottman concludes that contemptuous statements predict divorce. So if you want to predict divorce, this is not Christian research, it's just public research. You want to predict divorce, take record of the contemptuous statements that husbands and wives say to one another. The more contempt you show for your spouse, the more likelihood you will have divorce. Says it's present in the workplace where managers may have contempt for workers, workers may have contempt for managers or co-workers, and workers and managers may have contempt for their customers. Is that true? Contempt is prominent in electoral campaigns and political discourse. I feel like these days it's the only thing in politics is contempt. But here's the sad news. It's also true in the church. It's not outside. It's inherent to our sinful nature. It's been true since the time of Jesus. And this is exactly the opposite of the gospel. And if it's in us, it will poison not only our prayer lives, but the mission to which we've been called. So if you want to know if you have pride in your prayer life, just ask the question, do you have contempt in your heart for anyone? If you do, your praying will inevitably miss the mark of humility, humble praying. And so here, here's the weird thing. This is the, you know, the, the drunken peasant falling off the other side. You know, you say, be bold, be brash. And the next thing you know, you're looking at other people and going, why aren't you brash and bold in your praying? We can take the best things. In fact, here's what you've got to remember. Satan only has God good, God's good things to use and corrupt and twist to use against us. He'll even use the gospel against us. You can be proud of your knowledge of the gospel. Listen to Scotty Smith wrote this a few years ago, asking, uh, if you've read Scotty Smith, he writes a lot of prayers, he was asking prayer for forgiveness because we become self-righteous about the gospel. This is what he prays. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, when we love exposing and condemning false gospels more than we love spending time with you in prayer and fellowship. Forgive us when we're more paranoid about falling back under the law than excited to offer you the obedience of faith and love. Forgive us when we call ourselves recovering Pharisees and recovering legalists when in reality we're not recovering from very much of anything. Forgive us for talking more about who gets and doesn't get the gospel than humbly confessing our sins to one another. Forgive us for being just as arrogant about grace theology as we were obnoxious about legalistic theology. I'll tell you something. You want to see Kevin Dibley's pharisaical side? Just introduce me to a Pharisee. I hate self-righteous people, right? <laughs> a moment somebody says, gives like the, the just, you know when you smell religious pride? The smell of religious pride makes me arrogant and looking down my nose at people. And I go, man, it's, it's in us. It's in me. So here's the question I want you to ask initially this morning. Do I have contempt for anyone in my life? If you do, you might just be a Pharisee. Number two, 
not only what attitude before you pray, what approach do you have when you're praying? That's really where Jesus focuses in verse 10 to 13. Listen to what he says. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give the tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, I want to look at this for a second and ask some questions. One of the things we're supposed to notice is that when the Pharisee and the tax collector are coming to pray, they're coming to pray at the official times of prayer at the temple. So it was the third hour they would come in, which is 9 o'clock in the morning, or it would be the ninth hour at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the offerings were being made, and the priests were doing their things, and you would meet and pray, hoping that when they came out, you would receive the benediction, the blessing of God. That's what they're doing. Here's just another thing you should notice, that when they prayed, just so you know it's not like their private personal devotions, when they prayed, they would actually be standing there praying out loud. Talk about a bully in the schoolyard. The Pharisee is standing there saying, thank you, God, I'm not like other people that do this and do that. And within earshot, most likely, of the tax collector, and especially this guy. In an honor-shame society, he was shaming him while he was praying. It's about as bad as we can get, right? I want you to notice several things here. Number one, notice the position of the two men. Both of them see themselves as exceptional. They are both separated from the crowd. The Pharisee is doing what? Standing by himself. The tax collector is standing far off. Now, as you and I think about this, what we need to see is why, is, why are each of these men told by Jesus that they are standing afar off or standing by themselves? They're standing that way for very different reasons. The Pharisee is standing by himself because he doesn't want to be contaminated by the riffraff that have dared to come to church on Sunday, come to worship at the temple. The Pharisee, Garland says, serves as a picture postcard of those who imagine themselves to be righteous, whose self-image is at odds with God's judgment. Tom Schreiner says, the Pharisee stands by himself self-satisfied and smug, considering himself too holy to be defiled by others. So he separated himself. His prayer life is a sign of his devotion and his righteousness. And he's looking at them and thinking, what's the matter with all of these people? God forbid I would be drawn into them. Let me just say something here. Um, is it separation from sinners that makes you righteous? No, it's separation from sin. And my dear friends, you, you can stand on the other side of the planet the, or on the other side of the moon if you want and you'll still be in your sin. It's not separation physically. It's separation through the cleansing that is offered only through Jesus Christ who is himself holy, holy, holy. So let me ask you this question. What bothers you more? Your sin or someone else's? 
What does it drive you to do? Pull away or draw near? The tax collector or the Pharisee doesn't want to be contaminated and the tax collector doesn't want to contaminate others. He's standing over here separate and not even lifting up his head. See how they're positioning themselves? And we are meant to look at this text of Scripture and say, what, what do we do? Now, again, I ask the question, what, is, what do we see in the story of Christmas? What is the message of incarnation? The holy God of all eternity has done what when he looked down and he saw sinners? He came. He drew near. He entered into it. Is that your story? Your personal lives and your thought life in your prayer life? Remember Jonah going to Nineveh? Jonah going to Nineveh was pouting. I mean, he tried to go the opposite way. Why? Because he had contempt for the Assyrians and the Ninevites. He knew their story, their cruelty, what they had done. My dear friends, who's your Ninevite? We live, we see this in generational stuff, too. We look at what's going on. Look how bad 2022 was. As we go into 2023, are the sins of 22, 2022 in our culture moving you towards separation or compassion? C.S. Lewis writes, Jesus came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. This is in um, Lewis's writings, he says, every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. And so I just want you to stop this. What, what is Lewis saying? He's saying is in Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel is contagious. We're afraid that sin is contagious. We've got to keep ourselves away from it. We don't want to be tainted by it. We've got to make sure that we look better than what we actually are. And so we're all looking at personal containment. My dear friends, the gospel goes and transforms. Jesus came into the world that he might overcome the darkness with light, conquer death with light. So here's the question I want to ask. Do you feel exceptionally spiritual? Where are you positionally? Are you moving yourself away from sinners for fear of contamination? Are you more concerned about contamination than having compassion? If you are, you just might be a Pharisee. Oh, by the way, you are. Or at least I am. B, not only look at the position, but look at the vision of these two men. Both were comparing themselves with someone else. The Pharisee was looking at which way? Horizontal. I thank you that I'm not like other men or even this tax collector, right? I, I, I fast, I give my tithes, I don't do what they have done. He's looking this way. My dear friends, that's the easy way to pass the test. You can always find a Hitler. You can always find someone worse than you. That's not hard. You can praise God, right? And you can put down someone else, thanking God you're not like them. I remember R.C. Sproul one time used, uh, the late R.C. Sproul 
used the illustration of a continuum and he put Jesus Christ on one end and put Adolf Hitler on the other end and he said, now draw where you stand on that continuum. And I tell you, if you don't believe it now, you'll believe it when you see the Holy One, that you are on the Hitler side of things, touched and stained by sin more than you are holy, holy, holy like Jesus is. And so, you know, one of the things he's fighting against here is this internal sense that somehow by looking at other people, we're superior to each other. I'll quote another comedian other than Jeff Foxworthy, Jim Gaffigan. I don't know if you ever listened to Jim Gaffigan, but he tells about flying first class on a plane. Have you ever seen, listened to that routine? He says, get on first class. There's people that sit on first class on the plane, and they look down their noses at people going to the coach. Pull that curtain back there. You disgust me. Does anyone have a fiddle? Can someone in coach play the fiddle for me? Bring me the head of a pig. Okay, I got, I got too much information in my head, but, but that's what we do. We separate ourselves into first-class Christians and coach Christians, people who know and people who don't know, people who ought to know. We separate ourselves. But notice, what does the Pharisee do? Is he going like, or what does the tax collector do? Is he looking horizontally? No, and this is what we ought to do. He is looking vertically. It says he could not lift his head up to heaven. Looking, I can't even lift it up. One glimpse of the holiness of God. One glimpse of Christ hanging on the tree and thinking about that and thinking about my righteousness before him. Jesus had to be crucified for what you said to the people in the car on the way to church today. People in the next car. In front of you or behind you. We do this all the time. Just think about this. Parents. How do you correct your kids? There's always this generational gap where one generation thinks the like younger generations think the older generations are the reason why the world's the mess it is. And the older generation thinks the younger generation is the reason why the world is becoming the mess that it is. Right? And you start to engage each other in a certain way. Listen to what Paul Tripp says. We, we, we ought to look at one another like we're the tax collectors, not the Pharisees. He says, when your kids break God's law, Treat them as God treats us. Mirror the tone of his voice. Mirror the look on his face. Mirror the nature of his character. Every time you exercise authority, it should mirror the patient, firm, gracious, wise, loving, tender, merciful, forgiving, and faithful authority of God. You get it? If you get the gospel, how has God treated me? You look at one another and go, oh God, let me speak with the same tone. Let me give them the same look that I'm hoping you're giving me, that I know you're giving me. So here's the question I want to ask you now. Who are you comparing yourself with? Are you comparing yourself with others or with Christ? If you're comparing yourself with others on the horizontal level, not looking at the holiness of God and what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you might just be a Pharisee. Finally, in this section, notice the expectation of the two men. One is presumptuous, 
presumption, and the other is desperation. The Pharisee says what? Thank you, God, that I'm not like these other men. Now, they've come at this point in time because they are waiting to receive the priestly benediction after the end of the offerings. He's standing there believing he's going to be blessed because he he believes he's already blessed. David Garland says that he doesn't think this man actually thinks he needs anything because he has everything he has in himself. I think he thinks he needs the blessing of God. That's why he's there. But I think he presumes he's going to get it because he's such a good Jewish man and leader the tax collector says what god be merciful to me a sinner so few words some commentators talk about the different in the words the the pharisee has this long diatribe but very few words about how he's standing the tax collector has very few words but there's a long description of his posture standing before god have mercy on me a sinner now this is what i want you to realize here in this passage of scripture that as the the tax collector is standing not lifting up his heads and he says have mercy on me a sinner he doesn't use the typical word in the greek for mercy he uses a different word which a lot of commentators and i would agree are arguing that that's not the best translation of the text listen again to garland he says his prayer matches the pleas in the old testament one commentator contends that his outburst is precipitated by the fact that he prays during the corporate worship of the morning or evening atonement of sacrifice the prayer should not be translated be merciful to me because the elio 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 which is the usual use for mercy is replaced by the word elaskomai which occurs in the bible to mean make an expiation for me. Make propitiation for me. Do you understand what he's saying here? This is what's happening. The tax collector is actually standing there at the time of the sacrifice, fully removed, not because he's hoping that that offering will give him a blessing. He knows that there is no blessing for him. That the sacrifices don't atone for him. He has sinned himself outside the people of God, outside the covenantal promises of God. He's showing up with hope against hope. He's asking God to be propitiated, to expiate on his behalf because he has nothing within the Jewish system that will cover for his sins. He has sinned himself out of the people of God. Garland says the tax collector experiences anguish of the temple's promise of atonement from the daily sacrifice and the reality of his own sinful life, the forgiveness offered in the temple sacrifice confirmed by the priestly benediction doesn't apply to him. In his brokenness, this is what he's crying. God, make atonement for me. The word is reference to the mercy seat where they bring the blood of the sacrifice. They, make a, they sacrifice a bull in Leviticus 16 to cover for sins. They sacrifice a goat, and they carry it into the Holy of Holies and pour it on the altar. Now, you and I realize as we study the Scriptures, they bring that, that goat's blood and pour it on the mercy seat before God, that that does not take even the, the high priest's sin away, because what has he got to do? He's got to do it again, and he's got to do it again, and he's got to do it again. This man knows that the sacrifice cannot take away his sin. He has sinned himself 
outside of the promise of that sacrifice. But listen, listen to what the commentator says here. Riken says, knowing that he was under God's judgment because of sin, the only thing the tax collector could do was to ask God to be mercy seated to him. That's what the verb means. The tax collector was asking for God to atone for his sins, cover his guilt, and protect him from eternal judgment. And what this text is teaching, this, what Luke means to say here is what God is doing is providing a sacrifice in place of the Jewish system, a, a substitutionary atonement, a propitiation that could take away this man's sins. That's why Jesus has come. That's the story of Christmas. There is one who can go to the mercy seat and take away all our sins, the sins of the self-righteous Pharisee and the sin of the tax collector who is without hope. Is that not good news? So here's my question. What's the ground that you plea for God's blessing and forgiveness? Your righteousness or God's mercy? If it's your faithfulness, you might just be a Pharisee. Friends, this is what we are meant to see. What should we expect from Jesus? What should we anticipate from Jesus? Look at verse 14. Jesus says these remarkable words. I tell you, this man went down to his house, what? Justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. How is it so that the one, Jesus says, you watch these two men walk away. One guy, proud and self-righteous, walking out saying, I am a good man and I've achieved it. The other man walking out, having said, I am a sinner, an undeserving sinner, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, that guy is justified. Declared righteous in the sight of God. Do you understand how radical that was? Jesus standing there saying, all the sacrifice, all the Pharisees' legalism, all the activity of the temple would never take away sin. Only he could. Again, Garland says, from Luke's perspective, God is, that's why Jesus got his face towards Jerusalem. God is preparing an atonement sacrifice that will expiate this man's sin apart from the temple sacrifices. So here's what Jesus is doing. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisee. He's talking to those who are self-righteous and are speaking down to others. He's talking to them. Why is he telling this to them? He's telling it so that the tax collector and the Pharisee, like the younger brother and the older brother in the, in the parable of the prodigal son, that both of them would run to God and find mercy. Paul writes in Romans 3, For the by the works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that comes how? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Friends, hear this. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a Christmas gift, an Easter gift, an eternal gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ who God put forward as a propitiation. This is the scriptures. 
God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. John Stott wrote these words, it is God himself in, who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. Don't compare yourself with somebody beside you. It's God who needs to be propitiated. God himself, who in holy love, undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself, who in the person of his son, died for the propitiation of his sins. It is God, it is God, it is God, it is God. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in, bearing it in his in himself, in his own son, who took our place and died for us. At the end of this parable, the one who acknowledged his sin went up to his house justified. My goal today is that everybody would leave this place justified. I want you to go home not feeling like that tax collector beating yourself, and, but celebrating the announcement of Jesus. Today, you can walk out and know because Jesus propitiated for your sins, God is no longer angry, satisfied. Your sins have been forgiven. Justice is satisfied. Do, don't you want that? You can leave the load of guilt and shame. Here's the difficulty about being a Pharisee. At 3 a.m., you know you're a Pharisee. In your most lucid, honest moments, your sin comes up. Words that you shouldn't have said or words that you should have said and you didn't. Thoughts that you had towards another person that you should never have had knowing how God's thoughts have been towards you. Things that you did when you were 12, 19, 22, 42, 85, yesterday, this morning. Let me ask you this question. Have you brought your pride and your self-righteousness, your sin and your failure to the mercy seat? If you have, you're no longer a Pharisee in that sense. You can leave this place justified. You're now a child of God, forgiven, restored. I plead with you, this this is the best Christmas gift you could ever have. To know that you don't have to perform because Christ has done all the performing for you. So my dear friends, are you a Pharisee? Let's have an audible response. Yes. Is Jesus sufficient? Yes, praise God. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we acknowledge that we are the, the drunken peasant that Luther talks about. We just fall off on one side or the other. We lack hope and confidence in you because of our 
guilt and our sin and then we gain confidence in you and think we're performing well and our emotions go up and down and our relationship with you is contingent on how we feel about what we've done. Dear God, get our eyes off us and get our eyes on Jesus. Thank you, dear God, that there is a sacrifice poured out on the mercy seat, the blood of the Son of God, who did not despise us, but he humbled himself and became a man, took on the form of a bondservant and was obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Thank you. Father, set your people free today through faith in Jesus Christ. God's people said. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about Waterbrook Christian Church located in Victoria, Minnesota, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed day.